Digital Drift, episode 69, recorded Saturday, 23rd of May, 2015, Mad Max Fury Road. Before we start in on this summer's surprise breakout, which prompted this sudden emergency podcast, let's take a look at the first three on the way up, because pretty much everything good in those gets replicated in some form here. Joining me once again is my co-host Sharon Shaw. Good evening. From Kane and Rince and the Animation Archives, Mr. Joshua Garrity. Hello there. And from Gameburst and Altview Movies, Mr. James Perkins. Good evening. If you haven't yet seen Fury Road, just listen to us covering the first three films on our way there. It's worth listening to this first part, then leaving off, seeing the movie, and then coming back for the main event of the show. I have an unusual order suggestion to watch these films for you. Now, here's the ideal. Start with The Road Warrior, or Mad Max 2, as it was known in many territories. This is an excellent laying down of the general story, which is going to be revisited twice more with different approaches. What you will be watching is a top-notch, low-budget, ambitious indie action movie from the 80s, starring Mel Gibson before he went crazy, playing a man who may be crazy or perhaps the only sane one in the outback. Then Fury Road. This is arguably the same story on a much grander scale, so it makes sense to do it in this order. Then go all the way back to the original Mad Max. This tells a story that is the same but different. It is the origin of Max without really explaining an awful lot. It's far too dark and depressing to start with, and thus it doesn't match the rest, but it serves as a good zero-budget prequel. And finally, watch what happened when Hollywood got their hands on the franchise in the late 80s with Beyond Thunderdome, a goofy, affable family film which again retells The Road Warrior in a much more PG fashion. Nowhere near as bad as a lot of people label it, and a darn sight more rewatchable than the first movie. But of all of these, Fury Road races out in front as... At least two of us on this podcast will testify on this show. Fury Road is a legitimate masterpiece and very much worthy of our time. So let's address each film in order of production, starting with Mad Max 1979. Tomorrow in a world gone mad. <laughs> the only law will be a renegade squad of suicidal cops. It's my prisoner. And the open road will be controlled by gangs of glory roaders. Max is a cop, one of the best. Where does the run to get you? Scoot jockeys? Yeah, no man trash. Mm. Well, I'll add it to my thread collection. You made the news again. Hmm. Who was he? Just another glory roader, I guess. Toe Cutter is a glory roader, one of the most sadistic. Anything I say, anything you say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. Take him away. <gasps> I want my baby. You've not got a sense of humor. Please don't hurt my baby. You've got a pretty face, though. Both want the other dead. But only one can have his way. 
attacks. You don't want to make Max mad. Because when Max gets mad, he gets even. American International presents Mad Max, the maximum force of the future. Now, not a lot of people are aware, but George Miller directed all four of these, starting in 1979 with a super low-budget, cyberpunkish, pre-apocalyptic, or mid-apocalyptic, dystopian exploitation thriller. It cost $350. Sorry. It sometimes feels like it when you're watching it. It cost $350,000 and has made, to date, $100 million over time, making it the most profitable movie for 20 years, up until 1999 and The Blair Witch Project. In a nutshell, this first film is set in a bleak future where fuel is incredibly scarce and gangs of bikers roam the highways of Australia, raping and pillaging where they see fit. Max is one of the last few cops trying to bring them down in his V8 interceptor car. Things don't go well, his partner is put in critical condition, then his wife and infant son get run down by the bikers. Max goes on a roaring rampage of revenge, kills them all, and drives off into the sunset in the grip of powerful grief and anger. Miller and his co-screenwriter James McCausland based a lot of this awful behaviour on the 1973 oil crisis and its effects on the locals in Australia. Miller hypothesised that the way people saw things, their own vehicles absolutely had to be kept moving, and nations would not set up the infrastructure for alternative fuels until it was too late, something which continues to be rather relevant today. Miller had also worked for a time in a hospital, and the horrific vehicular injuries he saw gave him the grim inspiration, or grimspiration, to create this guzzoline-hungry world. Gibson was unknown at the time, and at the audition was suffering from a battered face from a brawl the night before. This conversely got him the role. Due to the low budgets, each car crash could only be filmed once, as that wrote off the vehicles, and only Gibson and his partner got to wear real leather. Everyone else had to wear vinyl. Most of the bikers who appeared were exactly that, bikers, and they obligingly brought their own bikes along. The only recurring actor in this film, within the series aside from Gibson himself, is Hugh Keysburne, who plays Toe Cutter, the evil, insane biker leader, returning some 36 years later to play Immortan Joe at the age of 68. The whole movie was dubbed into American when it was given the small distribution over there. It took 20 years for them to release a print with Gibson's original voice in the USA. New Zealand banned it as there was real life gang violence going on that this dystopian science fiction film mirrored. Then The Road Warrior became a success in 1981 and New Zealand lifted the ban and in 1983 and screened the original. It was, however, banned in Sweden until 2005. Upon its release, the film polarised critics. In 1979, the Australian social commentator and film producer Philip Adams condemned Mad Max, saying that it had all the emotional uplift of Mein Kampf and would be a special favourite of rapists, sadists, child murderers and incipient Charles Mansons. After its United States release, Tom Buckley of the New York Times called the film ugly and incoherent. However, Variety magazine praised the directorial debut by Miller, and in 2004, the New York Times placed the film in its best 1,000 movies ever list. What did you guys think of this first one? I, I kind of feel like it's exactly what it is. It's the kind of a, the first movie effort from a director with a lot of great ideas but not quite a lot of experience at this point yeah. so 
while there are loads of like nuggets of cool things in this movie, um, it kind of falls down in execution for me, and that's why I can't really. I mean, I don't, I don't dislike this movie. I think I'm glad it exists, and it's a, it's a good, it's good. But I, I don't love it the way some people uh, I know love it. It seems I, like uh, an odd, an unusual, and unlikely film to actively love. Yeah, I, I really like it. I said I don't love it, but I really like it. I hadn't seen any of the Mad Max films until a week before Fury Road came out. So I, so I watched all three and then Fury Road within the space of a week. So I was, uh, it, it, I was Mad Maxed out, but uh, <laughs> that, that that didn't um, that didn't detract from me absolutely doing Fury Road. But obviously we'll get into that. Um, so the fir- the first one, I uh, again I sort of um, mirror what Josh said. The a uh, lot of great ideas because of the um, the lack of experience and the um, obviously the budget sort of hindered that a bit, but it was still a great film and a great sort of introduction to the character and and his his um, yeah what, why he is how he is in in the, in the future films. I would say it's you should watch it if you want to have an education in how society's views on certain things and uh, arguably one man's view on certain things has changed in the course of 30 years especially in regards to female representation because in this film the first film uh, Mad Max's wife kind of exists solely to give him motivation for what he does in the film and then you you fast forward 30 odd years to Fury Road and you have loads of female characters but you know specifically Ferosa who is a phenomenal female character which I'm sure we'll get onto later you you sort of said how I think um, that might be mentioned yes yeah. <laughs> you you uh, mentioned Josh how um seeing it really being uh, one man's vision of of a dystopian future um also is what I think what sort of hinders it is the fact that um what's good about it sorry is the fact that he didn't have anyone above him shutting down his ideas he had the freedom Mm. whereas what we discover with mad max 3 beyond thunderdome is when obviously like alex said when hollywood gets involved a lot of stuff changes and he obviously didn't have as much creative freedom as he wanted that he did get with not only mad max but the road warrior as well you said it's a hard film to love but i think if you're looking at it from the perspective of a filmmaker observing what can be done when you're working with very little Mm. um, and how you can put an idea and a story across extremely sparsely. I mean, one of the... I think it'd be easier to be inspired by it than to love it. Yeah, Yeah, well, yeah, fair point. Um, But, I mean, I think one of the, the... It's an advantage and it's a disadvantage with the first one is that it explains so little. And because... You know it's set in the it's uh, placed and filmed in the Australian outback anyway, and it pretty much looks like it's placed and filmed in the Australian outback. So, other than a couple of hints that this is sort of future dystopia, that you know the discussions about the uh, the lack of fuel, yeah. it it is something that really could be happening now. Yeah, yeah. Or now, if now is the eighties. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> It is tough to watch. I think it's not much fun. It's not. No, there is a a bleakness about it Mm. that none of the others go back to. 
uh, with very good reason, I would say. Mainly down to the, the closing note, basically. The closing yeah. note is one of uh, pretty much despair Absolutely. and madness. But, I mean, I think the there's a through theme in the whole series about survival and what people will do to survive yeah. and what um, what groups of people will do to survive very specifically. Um, and I think that at this point, the idea of everybody clinging to needing the, the gasoline to survive. Gasoline, please. Sorry, gasoline. Um I mean, just look at, well, look at what he's done with the name, Guzzoline. It, it implies greed and um, unnecessary greed at that, you know, a gluttony element to it. Um, wanting something that you really ought to be able to get over and move past. And I think the, the bleakness in it, the attitude of bleakness may possibly come from the idea that uh, that these people haven't, and that at the time Miller didn't think that the human race ever would, or that you know the, the part of the human race that he is dependent on it. Mm. It's everything Arlington's trying to get people to move past. Mm, indeed. Yeah. Which, of course, like the, the cartographer's handbook, not to plug myself here, but um, was inspired by just seeing how fucking wrong all of these dystopian futures go, and trying to get one man to prevent that from actually happening. Not from um, past experience, because all you know it takes place in a time before all of this becomes part of the popular culture, but just from somebody who is able to look forwards into the future at the end of the uh, just this this cycle of greed and go, yeah, no, nothing good's coming of that. Let's try to nip it in the bud if we can. Um, this feels very much like El Mariachi to me, and in the same way that uh, uh, the um, I think it's been said that. Max himself is kind of like uh, Clint Eastwood's character in the Dollars trilogy. He's he's kind of it doesn't necessarily even though he's played with the same actor with the same name in the same kind of situation doesn't necessarily have to be the same guy. Um, and uh, it's he is more symbolic than he is um, literal. Yeah, I, I think, think that, that... Uh, one at a time, all three of you. Josh first, because you haven't spoken for a while. I, I, I was only saying yeah in agreement to what you were saying. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Midge next? Yeah, I was going to say, you're saying that he's more of, even though it's the same actor and the same named character, it could be a different person. I like So that that's kind of cemented when uh, the Road Warrior starts with a narration from someone else describing Max. So you could sort of take that uh, that's, that's their account of this person that they met. And to a greater extent, that could be said for the same for um, Fury Road yeah. from from uh, Furiosa's perspective. Uh, Sharon? I'd say that's absolutely true. And that kind of ties in with what I was going to suggest, that if you look at it in terms of the first film being the reality, yeah. Max then gets mythologized in layers. So the the... Second film is kind of like he gets his character gets a little bit bigger and becomes a little bit of a mythical hero um, and is somebody who is spoken of as the stuff of legend. Um, and then and then Thunderdome goes louder than that and makes him somebody who become and is told of in song and story here on Ever After. And then Fury Road goes even further and makes it bigger and louder and more symbolic and more representative rather than um, rather than feeling like a reality, um, if that makes sense. But yeah. I, I think that kind of 
it would almost be really interesting to watch them backwards to watch to see Max's <laughs> story get smaller. Mm. Yeah. Until you wind up with the human man who got completely destroyed by this world. Yeah, that'd be a good experiment for someone when, willing yeah. to to go in. It wouldn't I, actually be the the film. You, you'd be in for a treat either way. It would just leave you on a, a note of, uh. <laughs> and either way, you yay! have to deal with Tina Turner's hair somewhere in the middle. <laughs> God, <laughs> not again. With this being like El Mariachi, um, that that would make Mad Max Two, The Road Warrior, uh, The Desperado, or The Evil Dead Two, if you will, kind of like a a bigger budget version, doing something bigger and expanding the world of the original, uh, without necessarily being absolutely tied to it, and one that you could just go in and see straight away for yourself, and then go back later if you wanted. Um, also, I think Terminator 2 falls under this one, uh, Josh, since we had a similar discussion on our T2 show coming soon, folks. Yeah. Now, this is maybe the first and most influential in the future there will be Mohawks story ever put to the screen. In every example of a dystopian future with savage roaming gangs since, there has been some point of correlation, particularly in video games like Outlander, if anyone's ever heard of that one, it's a terrible Genesis game. Uh, Borderlands, obviously, Fallout, Rage, and Enslaved. This is what it has come to. Look! Help there! They're coming back! Come on! Move it! Here is where it shall be decided. Here it is. Greetings from the humongous in a world without gas. The Amongus rules the wasteland! I'm gravely disappointed that you wish to take the gasoline out of the wasteland. Defend the fuel. We'll never walk away! Give me the pump, the gasoline, the whole compound. This is a land that prays for a hero. Anyone's gonna get in there, it's gonna be you. This is Mad Max 2. Since I've seen driving like that, man. The warrior of the road. You're okay by me, pal. Gotta hand it to you, Treasure. The last of the V8 interceptors. Every day we get weaker while they get stronger. You wanna get out of here? You talk to me. Now to do the job, I need some high octane gasoline. Got yourself a deal. You can run, but you can't hide. You're gonna crash? Or crash through. I was wrong about you. I'm sorry. When it's every man for himself. And there's no place left to run. left is one last chance. Pray that he's still out there. 
somewhere. Mad Max 2. American International Pictures had only lightly distributed the culty original two years previously, so they deliberately downplayed the fact that this was a sequel, renaming Mad Max 2 to The Road Warrior internationally. Fortunately, it was able to get by on its own merits, even though the archival footage at the beginning clearly shows scenes from the previous film. The pacing fortunately allowed viewers to immerse themselves in this man's world regardless of his origin, something of a strength in the Mad Max series. You can see Fury Road without having seen any of the originals. Mad Max 1 was released on video as the thrilling predecessor to The Road Warrior, and by the time the third film rolled around, they were comfortably calling it Mad Max colon Beyond Thunderdome. The biker gangs are still here, only society seems to have actually crumbled from the brittle state of hanging on it was in circa the original Mad Max. The desert is roamed by these immense gangs, now dressed for no given reason, mostly in bondage gear. <laughs> That's what they could get their hands on. It's like, oh, these slim pickings here, guys. And in the case of the, and in the case of the gang we meet, led by a lumbering, mostly naked German Goliath in a hockey mask named Lord Humongous. <clears throat> Max roams the desert in search of food, water, supplies, and gasoline. He is accompanied by a dog, carries a sawed-off shotgun, and still drives his police interceptor. Max finds a settlement of decent people under siege by these unsavory burks, and ends up roped into offering them aid in their escape attempt. Cue a riotous cross-country convoy of a gasoline truck pursued by this gang and driven by Max. Much road-based carnage ensues, and the film has a rather excellent ending. We don't need to spoil the specifics, but it's much more hopeful than how the first one finished up. There is also a skullduggerous and spineless gyrocopter captain played by a toothy Bruce Spence, and a mute feral kid with a razor-edged boomerang scurrying about the proceedings. This movie is the tits. It's, it's, totally. all, it's also really well made. While the first has pretty standard raw first-timer aesthetics to it, and it's clear that they're thinking on their feet the whole way through, this second one feels really vivid and clearly defined with depictions of atrocious, savage behaviour, and to oppose that, fragile hope holding out against the wolves. Some of the weakest, least formidable people behave the most bravely, and there is a lot less script than there is visual storytelling. Plus, the stunts are genuinely impressive when you think about the kind of production it was. They have a rusty, full-bodied impact to go with that breakneck pace once it gets rolling. So, what did you guys think? I, I totally agree with what you said about the, um, the, the, the feel of it. Even though it was obviously a bigger budget and mm. and a lot more people were had um, this is you know this had already appeared on a lot more people's radar it still had that indie feel to it something that was uh, replicated in in fury road with with practical stunts rather than cgi i mean the um when you saw a car roll over it was actually a car rolling over like you mentioned for the first one they had to be done in one take because it would write off the car and that just adds to the the realism and the and the grit of it and that for me uh like i mentioned replicated in fury road was why both of these films are just incredible examples of of top top action films i'm kind of amazed no one's died in the actual stunts of these films yeah yeah, yeah. true it, it seems like they must have had some really good safety teams uh working for them despite the fact that it looks really low budget or maybe they're just very lucky you mentioned as well um the script what i love about the road warrior is the fact that max seems like a really 
fleshed out character that we know a lot about even though it's sort of quickly explained at the start mm. and throughout the entire film he has 16 lines and two of them are I only came for the gasoline oh seriously yeah 16 lines two of them are that yeah, he, it's he, only has, uh, he only has 20 lines in Fury Road. Yeah, but and, we'll, and, and that, that's, a, that's another thing that I really liked, but yeah, we'll get onto that. Obviously. But um, I, I, I think, yeah, th- this film is when you start to see George Miller really understand his craft. This film is really well paced. Um, there's an atmosphere to the film that I felt was missing from the first one. And yeah, just his, his knack for visual storytelling is really showing here. Um, he he's characterizing people by having them do things, by having uh, the camera show you things rather than rather than they explicitly say things, um, and that is something that um, he takes uh, into uh, into Fury Road, and I think expands on it and uh, uh, betters himself. Mm. This is why he's a mastermind in this in this genre and craft is just incredible. I think the lack of uh, speech on Max's part is quite specific um, in terms of selling you his character as well, because particularly after the events of the first one, what he is throughout the whole series is somebody who goes through this world without really interacting with it or interacting with it as little as he possibly can. Um, Now, Obviously, we'll go into this in more depth when we look at, at Fury Road, but he ends up feeling a massive amount of guilt because of that. Um, but I think that's something that, again, the visual element of it means that you you see this world from the perspective of somebody who, at the end of the day, doesn't really want to have anything to do with it, which reinforces how downright unpleasant it is to live in, which underlines the importance of this whole race for survival and the desperation for resources which in this second one i think really is made much more of and really comes to the fore because you see the people who are hanging on by the thread max is doing okay compared to them because all he's got to worry about is himself um so again you're looking at a situation where I suppose it could be argued that had he not lost his family, his life would have been a lot harder because he would have had more people to to support and provide for. Yeah. It does seem like uh, the uh, two opposing tribes in this, by the way, uh, you know, had to clothe themselves exclusively from well, one side from a store named Leather Daddy and the other side from a school gym. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the hockey All the pads. G- goodies are wearing <laughs> hockey gear. Uh, like it's it's great. There's um there, there's a lot of a preponderance of whites and sort of, but they're faded whites. So like they they um. But that does make sense for living in the desert. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have have you seen Waterworld or The Postman? I've seen Waterworld. I haven't seen The Postman. They, they both they're very similar films. Both of those uh, movies basically follow the Mad Max uh, route, specifically um, actually beyond Thunderdome more than any, any, either any of the rest of them. They're, they're that sort of Hollywood cheese, especially Waterworld. Uh, but uh, in both cases, Kevin Costner's Mad Max um, comes across communities of people who stare at him with these incredibly innocent eyes and believe every bloody word he says and uh, like within you know they'll start off a little bit hostile but then they'll bring him in because he's so exotic and interesting and then within the uh, within the first hour they'll basically be asking for his seed and you know he'll say no to begin with and then either 
uh, Gene Triplehorn or Olivia Williams will disrobe in front of him and say, you know, you've got to have sex with me. And he'll go, oh, I guess so. And it, the, each of them seem like ego trips for, for Costner. And um, although Lyra actually really liked Waterworld, um, but they've, they've taken the idea of sort of that Max um, bombing around between these communities and they've made the communities themselves really childlike and imbecilic. Yeah, with these guys and the guys in Fury Road, there's there's much more of a sense that they're real people and they're they're desperate and they're struggling and they're just they're, they're looking to, for, for someone to help them, but they're not going to just believe everything they're told and they have their own direction that they're going in. Um, it's it's different in um, Beyond Thunderdome because he meets the the guys of Bartertown who are all kind of scumbags and um, then the kids who are very very naive. So you got these sort of polar opposites there. And very specifically, they're segregated from each other. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they're, they're, there's less of an antagonistic situation going on. Mm. It's a very uncomplicated film. It's it's kind of Yojimbo, which also makes it a fistful of dollars. You've got your Clint Eastwood, Toshiro Mifone turning up, and there's two powers playing off against each other. Although he never gets to try to levy one against the other in the same way as he does in uh, uh, Beyond Thunderdome. And it just comes down to helping the people that clearly need help. They bribe him, and then when that doesn't work, they uh, guilt trip him. And then when that doesn't work, they plead with him. And then eventually he does it anyway. There's actually a really good uh, scene where the mayor talks to him and sort of goes through various stages of trying to coerce him. And eventually he just sort of like, he's shouting insults at him and and Max just sort of walking away. And there's this lovely kind of interplay with him and the feral kid where, um, uh, you know, they, they never say a word to each other. But it's also just like physical acting and like he gives him a little um, happy birthday music box thing. (laughs) And it's that kid wanting to throw his lot in with Max that kind of shakes Max up. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a great, straightforward, fairly pure movie and um, it's got great momentum to it. And uh, at the end, you go, want to see that again. This is possibly one of the most influential uh, yeah. uh, movies in the series, like by by far, um, every like post apocalyptic video game ever made draws from this movie, mm-hmm. um, and I while it's it's not you know a, a you know an absolute you know favorite of mine uh, as far as films go, it's inspired so many things that I love that I have to kind of thank it for that um, at the very least. I do love that bit with the boomerang at the beginning when. Uh... After the the Ayatollah of rock and roller bit, <laughs> it's, it's a very quotable movie as well. For the like the ten lines it actually does have, they're all pretty good. Like, Just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> and um, honestly, the guy playing the homunculus, Kjell Nielsen, like re- relative to um, Morton Joe, is rubbish as a uh, a villain. But um, he's kind of made up for by uh, Vernon Wells, the, the sort of the crazy one with the mohawk, who like who go no, we go, we go in, we kill. He he like he's got this like mad stare to him. He actually ended up as um, the villain in Commando. I'm gonna kill you now, John. Oh uh, God! He, he's got this like oh. super intensity going on there, and uh, he's he's very entertaining as a, as a villain to watch. And uh, I think basically most of the uh, Lord Humongous um, 
that that most of what he has going on is just about the fact that he's this sort of big lumbering guy in a hockey mask, which makes him mysterious. It says it says here, violent yet charismatic and articulate. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> through a trial by fire and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames who are you nobody i can feel it the dice are rolling <laughs> he was the one they called mad but he's just a raggedy man but to those whose lives hung in the balance where's the waiting ones waiting for what waiting for you he was the one they called hero ladies and gentlemen Boys and girls, dying times here. Now, Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. Mel Gibson, Tina Turner, Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome. I have to use that money to build my church. I've brought the fire and brimstone back to Christianity with the passion, and now I'm gonna start my own church. And do you know why? So I can play banjo. Jesus, oh how I love you, how I love you, Jesus. Dude, this guy is freaking daffy. Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome, made in 1985. Uh, it's like someone got into the, and I remember saying this, tweeting this as I watched it. It's like someone got into the framework of the Road Warrior and tweaked the sliders, pulling the violence back from 7 to 2 and pushing the saxophone slider from 0 to 8. <laughs> <laughs> This apparently takes place some 15 years after the defeat of the Lord Humongous. Max, now driving a horse-drawn wagon, comes across Bartertown, run by Tina Turner, up top as Auntie, an Auntie Entity and her saxophone player. <laughs> Down below is one by Master Blaster, a big guy with a little guy set on his shoulders. The denizens of this scrap heap trade Barter and fight in a cage called Thunderdome. So already we're talking about a much more kind of like, you know, ooh, that stuff's happening kind of plot. But it's a, it's a lot less grim and rape filled. There's actually there's a bit in um, the Road Warrior which I actually fast forwarded when I was watching it with Lyra. Most of the film is actually pretty harmless. Um, it's it's got some like like moments of like shocking hilarious gore. But there's this bit where like there's a prolonged rape and then the sadistic shooting of uh, a woman at you know at an extreme distance observed through a telescope with a crossbow, which is very uncomfortable to watch as it should be. Because this is, it's, it's kind of like ramming in your face. This is the cold, hard truth of what happens when people feel that they are able to exploit. But there's none of that in uh, Beyond Thunderdome. You get some pig shit thrown about the place, that's about it. Um, so anyway, Max plays one side off against the other. He fights Blaster and is exiled because he won't kill him. Uh, and he finds some children who have survived a plane crash and live a tribal existence in an oasis out in the desert, waiting for a grown-up to arrive and show them the way. Uh, through some narrative jiggery-pokery, the second group meets the first, and a big chase ensues. I can't remember exactly how this happened. I think one of the kids goes, I only saw it a few weeks ago, and I, it's just, it's gone from my mind. One of the kids wanders out into the desert, Max follows, and it's like, oh, the kid's suddenly here, and then there's a big chase. Max helps the children escape, and they reach the ruined city of Sydney to set up Haven for other lost wanderers. This is the first Max movie produced without Byron Kennedy, who was killed two years previously in a helicopter crash whilst location scouting for Beyond Thunderdome, literally suffering for his art. Uh, I think there's a certain amount of 
a sweetness possibly injected as a result of the sort of sadness that he's not there on Mart- uh, on uh, George's part. It's uh, infinitely more soft, approachable and child-friendly than the last two, with the kids coming off like the Lost Boys and Peter Pan, though not quite as annoying as the ones in Hook. Uh, the film is still visually evocative, even if it is painfully mid-80s. Yeah. And it is. <laughs> it reeks of the 80s. And when I did my uh, Blue Yay or Blue Nay review on... <laughs> On, Thun- on Beyond Thunderdome, um, I started with uh, this is what happens when Hollywood uh, goes mad with power and money. <laughs> they, they, they just, they just literally pick shit all over it. Um, and I even described, like you mentioned, the, the the tribe of kids. It just turned halfway through into some sort of Peter Pan bullshit. It and is kind was- of like with the Ewoks. After Empire Strikes Back, suddenly you got these cuddly Ewoks. Yeah, yeah, and it really sort of pulled me pulled me out of the the uh, the universe to to an extent, and it actually just made me more excited for Fury Road because I wanted to, um, you know, with the thirty year gap, mm. I wanted them to say right, look back at what they've done and learn from their mistakes. Oh, so they I, did. It, so, Jesus, exactly, they did. I know, and so that's why I'm kind of glad that Beyond Thunderdome exists, so they can say, look, this is what happened when Hollywood Hollywood took all of well most of the creative freedom away from George Miller let's give it back to him and mm. make something great and obviously they did but you know so it, it Beyond yeah. Thunderdome does have its place within within the series one of the things they dropped in a big way actually is is the survival element and the idea that you're really running short of food yeah. and water yeah and, those kids yeah. have a cushy life they're living in an oasis they, they for really nothing. did and, and Barter Town although it's not well stocked there is very much a sense that most of the people there have got just enough to get by on mm-hmm. um, and they, they stay be okay. exactly and beca- and they you know they stay there because it's better than the alternatives um, they they're not being starved of anything um, if anything the major sway seems to be boredom um, and that's you know the whole the thunderdome, thunderdome thing exactly it's it's kind of almost there to keep people entertained what do you mean almost it also um, serves a practical function, but it's their chief entertainment to yeah. stop riots breaking out. Good point. Okay, so this is what happens when you lose the TV. Mm, you need gladiators. <laughs> uh, apparently apparently the, um, uh, uh, the the children speaking in that weird language uh, was uh, borrowed wholesale from a book called Ridley Walker uh, by Russell Hoban, uh, which was written in 1980, where it's, it's set 2,000 years in the future in rural Kent, when um, uh, mankind has uh, devolved to sort of Iron Age level. Um, I kind of feel like I need to read this now. Ridley Walker is my dad's favourite book ah, ever. So what did he think of Beyond Thunderdome? Uh, he did not like it. So. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> well, I'd trust Josh's dad for a recommendation. Sorry, so you were going to talk before, Josh. What were you going to say? I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of just reinforcing what everyone else has said, but I, I, I do agree with what you said, Alex, that it is more watchable uh, than the first movie, okay. simply because there is a better sense of craft here, like it, it's better shot and what have you but well, stuff I, happens that you like like seeing basically, yeah, yeah but like, like seeing rape and, and, and really really cheap car crashes but it's, but at the same time I, I, I it's, it's a pretty stupid movie it's like, it, 
Yeah, it's it's. I can't respect it in even the same in even the same way that I respect the first one. Like, I don't I don't particularly like the first one, but like as a first effort uh, and kind of like uh, like a history lesson, if you want to you know present it that way of a, a director's development over the years i think the first one is much more interesting from that standpoint whereas this feels mm. like just kind of middling and uninspired it's it's you can rewatch it and it and put it on while you're doing chores or what have you uh, and 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 not get terribly not bored by it you. but it's not going to challenge you it's not going to it's it's not going to get the you know the old cogs whirring in your mind yeah uh, it's actually this, this trilogy up until this year stood as a really good example of how like something can come out of nowhere and then when it's given the right amount of attention and finance and distribution and, and faith in the project it can execute a really excellent follow up and then when people get greedy and they push it towards the middle and they make it for everyone they can compromise it yeah any more on uh, Beyond Blunderdome yeah <laughs> Um, all I can say is uh, Master Blaster reminded me of Ferrator from Mortal Kombat X. Yeah. He also <laughs> reminds me of... Um, remember the uh, the Juggernaut-type guy in um, Resident Evil 4? Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. One more thing as well, actually, while I think about it. Uh, Bruce Spence was in this again, but as a yeah. completely different character. Totally, What yeah. the actual hell... Well, they were looking for a guy who was a bit like the gyro captain, but not actually the gyro captain. So let's and that's get how the gyro captain, but not call him the gyro captain. I think that right. might have confused most people, especially <laughs> since he's with a kid. Um, yeah. But he just sort of mooches around in the background and doesn't really come to anything in this film. But, you know, it's, no, it's yeah. nice that he's there. Yeah, but, he's, um, he's a, like Bruce Spence plays a fantastic character in The Road Warrior, but in this he's just throwaway and it's like... Like, like you said, it confused me, even though I knew it was coming. I'm That's kind of so surprised he wasn't in Fury Road. Actually, it seems like he should have been. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a nice, not just a, yeah, just a cameo. Yeah. I was thinking, should I stay to the end? At the very, very end, is it just going to be like the empty desert, and then <laughs> and the gyrocopter just comes <laughs> across, <laughs> and he's pedaling as hard as he can. Now it's pedal power because he hasn't got the gasoline. <laughs> his, his presence does add to that sort of mythical element, though. The idea mm. that this is sort of yeah. you know stories being told after the fact. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I have to say though, we don't need another hero. Was the soundtrack to my eighty-five, my eighty-five, and, <laughs> and my eighty-six? <laughs> should we end on we don't need another hero? I think we. I should. think we should. <laughs> <sighs> okay, now on to Fury Road. Best step away until you've seen it. Spoilers after the music. In this wasteland, I am the one who runs from both the living. <laughs> And the dead. A man reduced to a single instinct. Survive. It is by my hand! You arise! From the ashes of this world! Property! 
Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Want to get through this? Let's go! What I loved most about Fury Road may not have been intended. Certainly from hearing George Miller talk about it, many of the more symbolic aspects of it kind of fell into place along the way as the story was being crafted, set in place more by logic than political intent. But it was when the movie was released and decried as secret feminist propaganda that the true meta-narrative took hold. The short story is that certain male homunculi lurking in the bowels of the internet, you know, the kind that very often look like a 50-year-old Johnny Knoxville in a pork mask, wearing a cheap horsehair wig and broadcasting their video blogs from their backs as they lie like Jabba the Hutt in a dressing gown, spouting bimbling nothings about how dangerous and hypocritical Anita Sarkeesian is for 90 minutes at a time to their audience of equally enraged boy things... Yeah, that kind of man got wind of the central premise of the movie and began a flatulent clarion call to their many goblin followers, warning them not to go and see this action film as it would further destroy a man's rightful place as the sole focus of the camera throughout history, with ladies reserved for looking pretty, making sandwiches and getting fucked. Here is a direct quote from one of these self-proclaimed, and this is a direct quote, misanthropic, hedonistic, and nihilistic arse breathers. In an article he hammered out upon realising Carly's Theron was in an awful lot of the promotion of this film, and might actually at some point bark orders at Max himself. <clears throat> Men in America and around the world are going to be duped by explosions, fire tornadoes, and desert raiders into seeing what is guaranteed to be nothing more than feminist propaganda, while at the same time being insulted and tricked into viewing a piece of American culture ruined and rewritten right in front of their very eyes. Let me stop you right there. American culture? Okay, carry on. Let us be clear. This is the vehicle by which they are guaranteed to force a lecture on feminism down your throat. This is the Trojan horse feminists and Hollywood leftists will use to, vainly, insist on the trope women are equal to men in all things, including physique, strength, and logic. And this is the subterfuge they will use to blur the lines between masculinity and femininity, further ruining women for men and men for women. So do yourself and all men across the world a favour. Not only refuse to see the movie, 
but spread the word to as many men as possible. Not all of them have the keen eye we do here at ROK, and most will be taken in by fire tornadoes and explosions, because if they sheepishly attend and Fury Road is a blockbuster, then you, me, and all the other men and real women in the world will never be able to see a real action movie ever again that doesn't contain some damn political lecture or moray about feminism, SJW-ing, and socialism. He was being absolutely fucking straight up deadly serious when he put that out. It was in an article crying for people not to go and see this film. Okay, so rewind to the beginning of the movie Mad Max Fury Road. Put yourself in the oversized shoes of Immortan Joe. You're having a lovely day. Your collection of pale young boys is chanting your name. Your stable of breeder sow women are imprisoned as usual with the deeply maternal ones being milked in the manner of livestock. Your rowdy gang are getting together a war party that will race to the nearest town and trade with the ruling body there, which, judging by the mayor, will be folks like Joe himself, but also likely populated with regular, weakened, desperate people in need of food, water and shelter. Nice and easy to exploit. Somehow over time you have looked at the positive aspects of your tyrannical rule and seen the abilities... <laughs> Somehow over time you have looked at the positive aspects of your tyrannical rule and seen the ability they have wrought for you and your followers to just about keep paddling in this immensely hostile wilderness. You have convinced yourself that this is the way things should be because any deviation would definitely be disastrous. And it's all for you, Joe. All to entertain you and remind you of the faith everyone has that you are the God King incarnate. They would kill for you. They would die for you because you have convinced them that your purpose is so just and holy that to follow it ferociously unto death makes your lackeys equally just. Then suddenly, the procession veers off the track, driven by a woman you believed knew her place. A woman who you knew was strong, but trusted to keep her eyes lowered and her defiance in check. You find your many wives have gone. She took them, snuck them right out under your nose. You're about to lose your lineage. That future you put so much stock in, where it would be your face that would retain dominance. And that terrifies you. So you give chase. Bring all your boys together, jump into your spiky death machines and charge out there to snatch these women back and put them into their rightful place again. You have the speed and the power. You can threaten and scare them. You can even harm and kill them. Though if that happens, you know you've failed and something has gone deeply wrong with the overzealous ferocity of your goblins. But ultimately, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. These women can't be caged. While some may be scared enough to just want to reverse things and go back to captivity, the group stays strong and keep their foot down on the accelerator. To add insult to injury on the delicate bruised egos of these belly-scratching, Dorito-munching rage sloths, the wives and Furiosa meet up with a gang of mothers. These are hard-bitten bikers of the outback with grizzled, tanned skin, sniper rifles, and compassion. Having been through hardship and oppression, these detractors can't comprehend and surviving. We end up with three generations of women defying these would-be captors, refusing to be bullied and choosing the terms of engagement. And even though his name is on the title, Mad Max himself is there to assist them. 
This is neither his story nor his movie, and his character is improved as a result. Imperator Furiosa made the decision of what to do, where to go, how to respond and reevaluate when things didn't go as planned. Once the initial hostilities have been put paid by the trials they go through, Max doesn't take charge or force the situation. He helps her pull back from a death charge out into the hundreds of miles of salt, merely by laying down perspective born of experience. It is Furiosa's journey to let go a little of that white-hot desire for freedom at the cost of all else, and look at what will benefit as many people as possible through cooperation. All these real-life internet lurkers had to do was ignore this movie. Talk about something else instead. As usual, they add far more strength and fame to their enemy, weakening themselves along with their pitiful arguments. Dozens of legitimate news outlets made fun of the above-mentioned article, and it has spurred more people to the theatre in hopes of seeing something progressive. They beef-wittingly place themselves in the role of the impotent pursuer, enraged at having what was perceived as theirs stolen. They could have been Max. Instead, they end up as the deluded despot Immortan Joe, at absolute best, and in every other case, as his unnamed, emaciated, undernourished, skull-faced, blindly devoted war boys. And at the end, after almost everybody on the Fury Road is dead in an orgy of twisted metal and burning earth, Joe meets his end by having his greatest weapon forcibly removed. His horrifying mask, used to strike fear into the hearts of the fearful, his jaw, the ability to speak and exercise his influence. The mask is one of anonymity, and ultimately we never get to see who's behind it, because the mask is more important. That is the face he wears when he interacts with the world. In effect, it replaces his own visage. So when it is ripped away, there is literally nothing underneath but meat. Inert, unthreatening, dead meat. Ultimately, he ends his life as a pitiful, pale creature in scary clothes with nobody to mourn him. In fact, when news of his death emerges to the greater population, it is a cause for celebration, because he lived the life of a tyrant. Remove that fear, and a tyrant is nothing. Furiosa, conversely, is surrounded by people who don't want her to die, and Max, who has previously been gruff, aggressive, and selfish, once again in his long, muddled life, finds something small and significant he can do that will make a big impact for a lot of regular people. He supports her. He donates his blood, something previously stolen from him by the goblins, but here given freely as a kindness. His ultimate act is not one of violence, but a meek act of selflessness. This may not actually be feminist propaganda in the intended sense of the word, but it serves as that all the same. And I mean that in the best way possible, just the same as The Babadook may not actually be a horror film in the truest sense, but it serves as one all the same. This is not preaching to the converted in the grander scale of things. People like us are going to see it in droves, but the vast majority of blockbuster audiences do not feel as strongly about this sort of thing. Let's look at the top 10 highest grossing films of last year to examine the female presence within them. <clears throat> last year's highest grossing blockbuster was... Anybody? Um, I honestly don't know. Sorry. Don't tell me, but I forgot. Was it Furious 7? 
Nope, that was that's this year so far. Um, like a movie? Nope. Transformers: Age of Extinction. Oh God! Which placed the girl in front of the camera in short shorts for the men to leer at, and at the same time featured an unsavory preoccupation with her sex life from the girl's repulsive father, Mark Wahlberg. Either way, she had zero agency and was used as a flag and a kidnapping princess. After that, it gets better. Next up was The Hobbit 3, wherein Fran and Pippa had to write a strong female character because Professor Tolkien didn't. They also added in a future strong female character that he would write, but kept to a single section of his epic Lord of the Rings. Next up, Guardians of the Galaxy, which contains two strong, tough women in prominent roles, supported by several floozies, a slave who wants vengeance and freedom, a mother and daughter, a beatific image of maternal nurturing, and a high-ranking police official. Great progress. Thank you, Marvel. Then, Maleficent, a twisting of Sleeping Beauty that puts the onus firmly on female power. Brilliant. Then, The Hunger Games female hero, evil male president, untrustworthy female politician who is supposed to be on Katniss's side. Not all good female characters have to be nice. Days of Future Past, lots of girl mutants. None of them are really as important as Charles, Eric and Logan, though. Although Mystique is a catalyst, she doesn't get to do much aside from drive the plot. Then the Winter Soldier, Black Widow remaining prominent throughout and in many ways more suited to their situation of espionage peril than Steve. Then Amazing Spider-Man 2 and that ending, whatever you make of that. Then Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Females are there, but it is males that drive the story. I was kind of surprised when I thought about that. I was like, oh, oh, hang on a second. And finally, at number 10, Interstellar. Anne Hathaway is there to explain via exposition what there was no time for NASA training to lay down for us. (laughs) Also, the character of Murphy is key to the plot and excellently played throughout. So of those ten, two were very much about women. Hunger Games, Maleficent. Two gave them near equal billing to the men. Winter Soldier, Interstellar. Three contained a strong female presence in support. Hobbit, Guardians, Future Past, Amazing. One used them as background characters, apes. And one objectified the living shit out of them in a vile manner that makes teenage boys feel that that's absolutely fine. That was the number one film. It's not saying anything new that there can be strong women in action movies that has been there for many decades but there's a difference between having a strong female character which by the way doesn't mean they have to be literally strong just the opposite of weakly written and having a pronounced and strong female presence in the film and having them be the ones who also affect great change that agency rather than mere inclusion is the absolute key aspect here. In the same way that roughly 4% of video games feature only a female playable protagonist, the percentage in films of women who change the way the story is moving, especially within genres that feature action, is so low that this sort of depiction is absolutely essential and so very welcome to affect a change in the landscape. The squealing man-boys, or as they proudly refer to themselves in the same breath as they try to make the term social justice warrior sound negative, meninists know deep down, or as deep as they can get, that they are fighting a losing battle. Like Neanderthals flinging their own shit at the Cro-Magnons round the corner, they represent a dying world and a cultural cul-de-sac. They can be dangerous in their death throes and genuinely threatening, but anger based on fear cannot keep any group going indefinitely, least of all when what they're fighting is the very nature of re-evaluation and evolution. Trying to cling to a closed system 
without the slightest clue of the second law of thermodynamics, whereby that shit rots inexorably, leading to disorder and decreased complexity. So as they shout louder, their ranks dwindle as people find the strength to step away from them and just be decent, unselfish, and cooperative. Now, we'd growl, remember me, as they die, but really the onus is on us to remember them and the shitty mistakes they made so that we do not repeat them on our journey into a better, and dare I say it, maybe even a lovely day. to Fury Road. It's fucking astonishing to experience. It's an opera. That's the absolute best way I could put it. Everything is so strongly felt and vibrantly expressed in sound and vision. Everything is so raw and primal. Miller has been out of the action game for decades and suspected at the close of each of the previous three films that he was now done with Max for good. What he learned doing Babe, Pig in the City and the Happy Feet Dancing Penguin films is that for every scene there is a perfect place to put the camera. This, by the way, is a joyful told-you-so on my part to an idiot I once went to college with who maintained that animated films weren't really films as there was no camera to speak of. Quite the opposite, in fact. From the sounds of things, it gave Miller the training he needed to go from passable mid-80s family action to one of the best-shot examples of organised chaos on film. The momentum and literal driving force of proceedings is impossible not to get drawn into. It's like we've stumbled off a bridge and onto the back of this speeding truck, and the best we can do is cling on for dear life. Yet what truly cements it is how much I engage with the characters. Max himself is the fourth most interesting person on screen, and even he could be described as a little bit fascinating. So let's go into these characters, because I am happy to say I could write an essay on each of them, if left to my own devices, but I've talked enough. Before that, I'd like to hear what our guests thought on seeing the film from beginning to end, with particular focus on its key themes of survival, vengeance, solidarity, and the nature of home. Uh, Josh, you want to start this one? (laughs) Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm in agreement with everything that you've said. I, I, I came out of this movie uh, just gobsmacked. I, I, I had no hype for this movie. I should say. Me neither. I, I, we saw I, Furious I, Seven and was like, oh, that that like really long bit of sandstorm driving looks kind of visually impressive, but I didn't expect this at all. Yeah, and. And it for, from it to go to ah uh, yeah, I I might go and see it to possibly one of my favourite movies of all time. Wow, uh, is like it's a huge. That's amazing, and um, I, I I think the thing that impressed me the most was how this film conveys so much of its thematic depth mm-hmm. and meaning just by showing you it, rather than hammering you over the head 
with all these you know speeches and and what have you and i'm I'm not complete like don't take this as me criticizing a great dialogue long dialogue in other films script is essential yeah but like sometimes i like pizza and sometimes i want a curry and sometimes (laughs) sometimes i i fancy watching a film with long streams of like really great dialogue and sometimes i want to watch a film that leverages what makes film unique as a medium and this film better than any film i've seen this year so far leverages what makes film unique as a medium to convey so much like um one example um for me is the way that it conveys uh, the different kind of motivations of the characters through the music and the visuals um there's this track called um uh, brother in arms on the soundtrack which is a great yeah, example it's incredible. of this and because the beginning of the track um and in the context of the movie it feels like it's from the context uh, and from the perspective of the pursuers and the and it's ve- the the music is very violent and the strings are, are really aggressive and the drums are, are they feel like war drums and and you get that sense of this crazy madness that is coming up behind our heroes but then about two minutes into the track it kind of shifts gear and the movie does the same thing it, it suddenly takes the perspective of our, uh, our of our protagonist and then uh, the strings change and become uh, more symbolic of like this desperate hope this 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 urge to push through this madness and the drums stay exactly the same or almost exactly the same there's still this kind of war like emphasis in the background like there's this violence going on in the background but at the core of the the music is this desperation to get through this and then every once in a while the track peppers in the violent strings again as it changes perspective it's so effective it's Mm. so effective to have that all conveyed through music working in in harmony with the visuals on screen And it it just 
uh, it, it's really hard for me to not just go into superlatives with this movie because it's well, so, gonna. <laughs> so it's so good and so effective at doing uh, doing all of this stuff and conveying so much meaning. But in what is a, a relatively, when you consider how dense this movie is, small runtime, mm. and with a plot that, you know, you could do the ultra-reductive thing that people have done with Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, where you go, well, it's a bunch of guys walking to a mountain and dropping a ring in the You'd mountain. You'd be a wanker if you did that. <laughs> yeah. And you, you could do the same with this movie. Well, it's a bunch of people who drive to a location and decide to drive back. But in doing that, you are totally ignoring so much <laughs> in so, terms so of... so much more about yourself than you are about the movie. Yeah, yeah. It just... I saw so little of this! <laughs> and, and just... I, I don't know how you... you get I'm... Point, I've got to say huge, huge props to Tom Holkenberg, Junkie XL, as yeah. the, the, the score in this. It's incredible. Listen, get the soundtrack, folks. It's, it's totally worth it. It's it's amazing. Um, Great running music, by the way. You don't want to slow down. To talk uh, linked into the uh, showing, not telling. Um, Mad Max is a character who I just want to briefly touch on here. I know we're going to talk about in detail the way this film uh, conveys insanity mm -hmm. is is really effective because um, Mad Max only ever tells you about his madness at the very beginning of the film when he narrates it for a short period of time. And then from then on, he never speaks about it. He never tells any other characters about it. It is just conveyed through what he sees. And a lot of the decisions he makes in this, uh, in this film, he doesn't explain to the character. Like, he doesn't explain to Ferosa at the end of the film, for example, oh, I decided to come and, and help you because I felt guilty about all those people who I've left to die and uh, uh, they're haunting me and it, it's driving me insane, so I want to seek some kind of redemption. He simply says, maybe we'll stumble on some kind of redemption and holds out his hand, and that's it. And that's all you need. That's all you need to convey um, everything that you need to know about his motivations as a character. Just see it, see the insanity from his perspective and then see the decision. You don't need reams of dialogue explaining why he came to that conclusion. Um, uh, someone else talk because I've talked for age. I'll talk about color briefly. The there was a choice to make this like really desaturated, and yeah. uh, what did we see? Oh yeah, it was Terminator Salvation, Sharon. We saw which has got no fucking color in it at all. Not it's so boring to watch that film. It's so boring, and <laughs> it's it's just, it's infuriatingly boring. And uh, this. I know it's like a thing that happens specifically on posters and trailers, but Orange and Cyan working together, the sky and the desert, and just this in immense bursts of colour. It's so visually arresting to watch this film, and I'm so pleased he didn't bleach all that out and make it like this awful, desaturated shooter. It is, it's glorious uh, when it could otherwise just have been... Um, was, it like, was it Black Hawk Down that started that trend? I, I feel like it was. I, it, it definitely influenced a lot of mm. movies that came after, so I wouldn't uh, I be mean, surprised. Black Hawk Down's a great, great film, but um, it, 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 
just the amount of desaturation. Specifically, that that's also infiltrated our games like solidly. So now yeah. we can look forward to like 10, 15 hour games, like sometimes even longer. It's just grey, brown, black shit. I was going to say, the whole, a it's so very f- solid film and game feedback loop going on where yeah. the games imitate the films, imitate the games, imitate the films, and on and on. It's and one thing to watch a film where you're bored and you just like passively sit and you wait for the scene to move on. It's another to be basically confronted with a by a landscape so bleak you don't want to take another step Hmm. james go sorry yeah i uh totally agree with everything everyone has said uh the trailer was uh the trailer spoke the truth george miller is a mastermind and uh, (laughs) did the trailer say that or was that a quote (laughs) just said George Miller is a mastermind See, I think it says something like a mastermind of our time or something it, like that it says it? from the mastermind George Miller yeah. um, and I'm going to make the pun but uh, what a lovely day that was when I saw Mad Max Fury Road my god this film is incredible I'm just going to echo what you said about the presentation it was stunningly beautiful and my god it, I was sucked in I didn't take my it's probably the first film in years where I didn't take my eyes off the screen for a single mm. second and yeah. I totally I agree with what I you watched. said Josh it is now one of this is easily my favourite film this year and I've seen a hell of a lot of films this year without mm. a shadow of a doubt the best film I've seen not only this year but for a extremely extremely long time the the little nuggets that were thrown in uh, the the nods back to the original the feel of it felt indie but on this grand scale and yeah. budget there were loads of little bits in there the the scene at the start where he's running from uh, where, where, after he gets captured where he's running down those twisting corridors mm-hmm. and it feels like the the te- uh, the tape is sped up by one point five times and that just it adds to the authenticity of of the film and not only that like i said the little easter eggs the little music box and and Mm -hmm. the original car the the just things like that even though i hadn't seen any of the mad max films until a week before seeing those in there lit my face up and i felt like i'd been a fan for years and that in itself from a 70 year old man my god i can only dream of being that incredible at the age of 70. He is a one-of-a-kind human being. George Miller is amazing. I've got to see this babe pig in the city. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, the colours. <laughs> Just talking pig. It's out of this uh, world. They're fucking dancing penguins, man. Um, I just can I, I as uh, Alex yes, brought yes. up colours. I one of the things that impressed me is how uh, George Miller and and the crew exploit lighting and colour to convey things about the characters. Mm. There's one scene in particular where they're driving at night, and in this film, night is expressed through this lovely blue mm. colour that they uh, that they have. And while they're in the car and they're driving along. All of the the innocent characters, the characters who haven't seen much of war and seen much of conflict or violence, are bathed in white in the back mm. and are all huddled and scared and nervous about the road ahead and, and the terrors that they uh, they have to look forward to. 
Whereas the two warriors in the front are bathed in darkness and they're staring straight ahead with a cold focus because they know exactly what waits for them along the road ahead. And they and they convey all that just through a simple lighting trick mm. and, and drawing your attention to the way the characters are uh, grouped together and how Ferosa and Max are kind of uh, divided. They're separate because they're kind of... Uh, they 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 need to be able to rely on themselves the way they've lived their lives, whereas the others in the back need to rely on each other. It's 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 stuff like that that makes this film a masterpiece for me. That it in a second conveys character relationships and and characterizes them all uh, in a single frame without having to speak a word. Just with lighting. Yeah, man. You mentioned how it was so easy to um, convey the character and their story. I, the the start of it, I was uh, obviously going into this um, with previous knowledge of Max's background, mm-hmm. or obviously the, the Max that we think is in the film, his background. Um, I went along with a friend, and he had never seen the original, so it was nice to get his um, opinion uh, of, of the film from the perspective of somebody who's never seen the originals. And he felt like he knew the character within the first few moments of the film. Again, yeah. that is the 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 mastermind oh, yeah. of George Miller. He he can tell what he's he can tell the story of Max within a couple of minutes. Obviously, back in uh, thirty six years ago, he did in an, in an entire movie, and now he's learnt so much uh, over these last thirty six years that he can convey that story within a couple of moments, and yeah. it's just incredible. I, I mean, not ju- not just this that moment at the beginning, but just mm. the whole film. I think yeah. one of the things I, I, I credit it with is knowing what information is important and knowing what information your audience can just fill in the details for themselves. Yeah. He, the reason why it's so easy to convey who Car- uh, Max is at the beginning of this movie is because they, they're light on the nuances of what actually happened to him mm. and just give you a vague idea of who he is and what his past is like enough that the audience can just imagine it and, and just do the heavy lifting for him. And that's just, that's putting an awful lot of respect, uh, giving your audience an awful lot of respect, which is something that like a lot of movies don't do. No. Um, no, there they, are, they- they make out that the people are dumb and they have I, to fill in the gaps for them. Yeah, and, and I, I really like Christopher Nolan and I, I like him more than most, but one of his, big, his biggest weaknesses as a filmmaker is his need to explain everything to his audience. Inception. Um, and, um, Bloody and, hell, Inception. <laughs> and I really Less like so it. with The Prestige, I might add. In fact, some of the best aspects of The Prestige is that a lot of it's left to interpretation. That, I think that's entirely because of what the prestige is about. Um, mm, mm. But unfortunately, uh, that's a weakness in every other film he's made. Apart, yeah. apart from, uh, actually, the Batman film's going to suffer from it as well. But this film, they just, like, what it makes watching it a second time um, great as well. Because you do pick up on so much, so much detail that mm-hmm. you don't pick up on. For example, I did like it seems stupid now, but I didn't even notice the fact that uh, at the beginning of the film they were they were saying that uh, Max was a universal donor on the tattoo. I think yeah. I was so gripped by what was going on that I, um, I I kind of wasn't focusing, so I wasn't able 
able to read what was on his back. But the second time was like, oh god, they're they're telling you like this important plot detail um, just through a visual, like a one frame, and then they just move on. And you'd be like, you'd be mistaken for you know believing like. Uh, when it comes to that important moment at the end of the film, going well, maybe that came out of nowhere. That came yeah. out of nowhere. Like, what if what if his blood type isn't a match and stuff yeah. like that? But like on the second time, it's like, oh no, no, they did think of this. They just respected me enough to not, you know, have to hammer that home. Just yeah. give me a little bit of information mm. and just, you know, press on with the plot. Yeah, Sharon. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt everybody, but I haven't spoken to Sharon about this at all. I said, let's wait for the podcast. And we've spent the whole bloody week not talking about this film. It was supposed to be like the the night of, then the night after. Then we Mm -hmm. delayed it until uh, today so we could get you guys on. And um, I'm so glad we did. Just just hearing the enthusiasm from both of you. Um, But uh, do you like it, Sharon? (laughs) I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It blew me away visually and in terms of character engagement um, and in terms of the, the thing I always love being smacked around the face with, which is symbolism done right. Mm. Unfortunately, it drives me up the friggin' wall when I get symbolism done wrong and I'm saying right and wrong by the way in the sense of how I like to see them done I don't think there is really an empirical way that you can do symbolism correctly or incorrectly so say a ghost killing another ghost with a rocking horse that's symbolism done wrong (laughs) anyway um yeah so it, it really did trip all the right switches with me I as far as what all of you guys have said absolutely totally behind everything and um I just want to pick up on something that Josh said that intrigues me about the idea of it maximizing uh, the advantages that film has as a medium in terms of how it can communicate with people. And what you said, Alex, about not preaching to the converted. Here's the thing. This film is geared to hit people who whose emotional triggers are visual. Mm-hmm. And people who don't, like you say, don't need those long expositionary dialogue, that massive engagement between characters in terms of the, the language that's going backwards and forwards between them. Um, the things that will really grab them are what they can see and that in combination with obviously the, the music behind it. Now, as far as the look of the film is concerned, um, one thing that... I think has really struck me in terms of of what this says about uh, action movies and how they set women up. Um, And the the previous Mad Max films are guilty of this as much as any other. Um, But one thing very specifically about this that impressed me more than anything else to do with the the inverted commas feminist propaganda and and all the rest of it, um, and that was the fact that George Miller gave this film to his wife, Margaret Sixall, to edit specifically because he didn't want it to look like every other action movie ever. Um, and, I mean, her her background in editing is in things like Babe, Pig in the City and Happy Feet. And, and that 
big, loud explosions is not necessarily something that you would think she would work well with. And I think a lot of the uh, the the looking at the film from a different perspective comes from that and comes from her. Um, and the, one of the reasons that I think that that's very key is in terms of, of empathizing with characters who are very different from you. One of the things that you, you physically can't do is see through their eyes. And film is about the closest you're going to come to being able to do that. You can read a, a bi- an autobiography of somebody who's experienced certain things. Uh, you can hear their words and try as best you can to empathize with them. But you can never really see things the way they see them. Um, and, and film, as I say, is, is one of the few ways that you're going to get that across to people. So I think that was something that that really put the, the power of getting that across into unusual hands and benefited massively from it. The second thing is that the there are two films specifically that this really brought to mind for me. And it's really odd because neither of them are films that you would normally connect with the action genre. Um, and they're both based on novels. And they've both been filmed in ways that really emphasize the novel part. You know, they're, they're the kind of films that really would appeal to people who've already read and enjoyed the books. And that's Clockwork Orange. And Shirley Valentine. Not what I was going to say. <laughs> um, Clockwork Orange and The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and specifically The Handmaid's Tale for um, the the women's perspective, the idea of being um, husbanded, no pun intended, for purely reproductive purposes. And, um, and The War Boys being these incredibly pale, washed out, massively manipulated boys who are convinced by virtue of somebody who is holding all the power and pulling all their strings that this violence and this aggression is the only way that they will have any power in this society. And for those two to be the films that I went to for points of comparison, I would say speaks quite highly of Fury Road in terms of what it got across to me um, and uh, the ideas and themes that it um, that it put through. characters yes please okay right um let's start with nux because we haven't do you want to start with nux is he a good starting point i think he is since you just yeah, mentioned yeah. the uh, uh the pale young boys he came out of nowhere for, well, okay right the moment i saw that he was played by nicholas halt i was like right here is a guy that if they kill they are wasting a really good actor and yep. here is a guy in a position that if they take that away from us we're being robbed of a really good viewpoint. So I was incredibly gratified that we got to see his whole journey. And 
in terms of char- uh, he's probably the character has the biggest arc. Yeah, uh, it's a- and it's 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 so simple, but it's such a huge arc. Yeah, it's a very skillful piece of casting as well because that Nooks was a character that especially in combination with everything being very visual and things not really being explained, you have to believe him as having a modicum of sympathy from Mm. the beginning. Mm. And if you'd cast wrong and that wasn't there, you'd have needed a hell of a lot more exposition than you got to believe that he could change and to see the threads of why he was the way he was yeah, if you cast mark Wahlberg, for example Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, no who's that guy who's uh, playing uh, the new carl reese him that oh, guy J- jay courtney yeah i hate I, I hate him to his core <laughs> oh, shit <laughs> But uh, I'm sure I, he's he was, a very nice person. He I'm sure he's a very nice person in real life. I just wish he would not get any more work. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I wish he would get a lot of work at Tesco's. Uh, no. <laughs> this is the guy who played the son of Bruce Willis in Die Hard 5, now playing the father of John Connor in Terminator 5. Again, it might be great. He might be great. And if that's the case, I will happily eat my words. If not, refer back to the previous statements. I just realised I said the son of Bruce Willis, not the son of John McClane. That's what Die Hard 5 is. He's not even John McClane. He's not even John McClane! He's Bruce Willis. Ugh, that film. Holt, we've already seen uh, pulling uh, an incredible performance uh, as uh, uh, Hank in uh, X-Men. But he's also really good in uh, Warm Bodies and About a Boy. And uh, what else have we seen him in recently? What are you thinking? Talking about Nicholas Holt, I was in Asda the other day and I spotted a film called, I think it was called um, Badland Road to Fury. Uh-huh. So that sounds very similar to Mad Max Fury Road on the get-go. Not only that, but Nicholas Holt is in that and it's set in the Australian outback about a, a man who is trying to protect his his farm and his family from a load of savages and Nicholas Holt is in there and on the back of the box it says starring Nicholas Holt in in brackets Mad Max Fury Road interesting <laughs> uh, on the poster on the IMDB it's called Young Ones I wonder mm. why they'd have renamed it Badland Road to Fury <laughs> God's sake that's an I, asylum trick if ever I heard one yeah the horrible moment there actually Midge I thought you were going to say you went into Asda and Nicholas Holt was working there <laughs> I pulled the Jai Courtney short straw. <laughs> but yeah, it just it I, I saw that and just thought, what what the hell is this? Look this forward is... to Jai Courtney and X-Men Apocalypse. <laughs> back to Nux. Yes, yeah. back to Nux. Um I he brilliantly humanized what would uh in any other film be an army of nobody uh meat sacks who the heroes shoot and kill and what have you um just his desperation for his life to have a higher purpose mm. uh informs how the other war boys must have been when they were recruited by Immortan Joe um the fact that they're all suffering from some form of cancer uh, speaks to that as well that 
Look, you guys are already going to die. Might as well die for me. Might as well die for a higher purpose and and join me on the highways of Valhalla. Like yeah. these guys are all have all been brainwashed by this uh tyrant. And to have that much um humanity uh inserted into what you know for the most part aren't really characters they're kind of just uh extras in white makeup but to have that character kind of inform on all of them was a smart move because suddenly this wasn't just a group of nameless uh uh you know minions uh dying left right and center suddenly their lives actually mattered suddenly their deaths actually had a sadness to them that mm. their lives were being wasted for this 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 liar and de- this deceitful tyrant who they've dedicated their lives to but but seeing nux kind of go from being absolutely dedicated and slowly over the film realizing the folly of that and and finding an actual higher purpose that meant something that truly meant something to sacrifice his life for gave some hope to the rest of them that mm. the others weren't beyond saving that the others could uh given time see the folly in what they've dedicated their lives to yeah. and there's a, a reason why that's important as well because those are okay followers and that that website that are okay stands for return of kings am i right yes yes yeah um the the people they say that they're not a men's rights website yeah, mm. um, I've seen some of their posts. Yeah, uh, but the people who are taken. I'm in... assuming that the kings that they're talking about are the gypsy kings. <laughs> they want to see them have a comeback. Plausibly. They are really into that idea. They're really enthusiastic about, about them gypsy kings. Mm. Sorry, carry on. But the the people who are taken in by that propaganda, by that idea that you know the world is being trashed by feminists and taken away from you. By by like self-professed nihilists, mm. I might add. But that's that's who the war boys are in this. That's that's their role in this film. They are not Max. They are Nooks. They are the person who's been um who's been fed literally. They take this um model of masculine craziness of um, height and muscles and aggression and um, solitude and they literally drain the blood from that image and pump it into these poor kids who, after having been fed it day after day after day, are led to believe that that's what they have to aspire to if their life is going to mean anything. It's, it actually reminds me of Mass Effect, the way they handle his character in terms of... He's Legion, if you will. He is our window into that world. And also, Legion's the, uh, the geth that uh, is the most liable to change, depending on your choices. But I think the most significant thing about what Nux's death actually ends up being for is that he chose it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a purpose of his own choosing and for something he genuinely cared about. Like, mm. he he actually formed a real relationship with these people instead of the lie that he thought was a relationship with a Morton Joe. And, and, and his, while his death is sad, there is a, a, an element of happiness to it because he finally got what he was looking for and it mm. was real. Uh, he he wanted to die for a higher purpose, and he did. 
And that's actually, it's a really good way of showing, um, it's, it's not just about freeing women, it's about freeing men mm. as well. The, yeah. the idea that, you, that there are boys just as trapped by this bullshit. Yeah. <sighs> because if you don't fit the template, that bullshit will make you ostracized and cast out until you cut off bits of yourself in yeah. order to fit that template. Cat Cat said something very interesting to me about this film in that um, it's very easy when you're creating a film with strong uh, female characters to kind of lessen the male characters in order to kind of emphasize it to make them horrible kind of. Uh, people or weak or what have you, but actually, to a man. yeah, yeah. But in this in this film, uh, the women are strong, but it doesn't diminish the strength of Max or the strength of Nux, um, mm. and the fact that it's not men who are uh, villainized, uh, you know, uh, demonized in this film. It's not men as a concept, but the patriarchal society that we all exist in that mm. is demonized. It's men, the, yeah, men aren't evil. It's just the world that we've created is. Mm. Um, it's specifically the two guys at the top who are holding all the power, and by God, they're not going to let any of it go. I love that they're both horribly killed. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I love the fact as well. Like like you mentioned earlier, when when a Morton Joe is killed, uh, the words "Remember me" are, are uttered. Um, I took from that a nice throwback to uh, Mad Max One, where uh, after Knight Rider um, is killed at the beginning, uh, they all constantly chant, uh, "Remember him when you look up in the night sky." Nice, well done. Yeah. Um. Okay, so let's see. Immortan Joe probably makes sense to go to yep. next, yeah? <laughs> um, so, I mean, despite all of the horrible shit we leveled at him, he, on some level, there is a sympathy to be applied to him. Mm-hmm. It's, um, he could change things at any point. You know that at any point he could go, right, okay, you know, we're doing things differently, and everyone around him would go, oh, we are? Okay, boss. But... Uh, it's almost like he set himself up this this whole system and he's terrified of changing it. Yeah. I think the way they sell um, Joe as being lost to the system is that the introduction that you get to him is of him clothing this twisted and warped body uh, that is obviously very, very sick in armour and scarified mask and... Uh, thereafter presenting himself as being utterly invulnerable and totally in control and never letting any of that go. Um, You kind of see at the very beginning, there might possibly be a scrap of sympathy in there for him, but then he very, very quickly squanders that. Um, And it's by virtue of him making himself uh, this isolated figure of power, and then his his lines about the the water that he's holding back from people, that he's accusing them of being addicted to. Oh, I and, love the bit when he said, "You don't do not get addicted to water." Yeah, dude, this is the stuff of life. <laughs> they die without this. Are you crazy? I mean, I loved, I hated it, but it was just such an incredible way of showing power in one sentence absolutely yeah. and it's and this this idea that he thinks it is okay for him to hold back 
life. Yeah. That's what makes him the closest this gets to evil. Um, and also, did anybody else get a real Hitler vibe out of him? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. And could his guys be any whiter? No. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think he's... Uh, all of the despots in this movie are kind of symbols for... Uh, you know the great um, tyrants of our of our history. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Hitler, but I also think there's a strong North Korean vibe in that. You know the people at the top are hoarding all the resources and living like uh, you know living like gods, whereas the the people are are either brainwashed and and serving in the army or starving mm-hmm. and and barely able to survive and 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 just. The the fact that um, all the the war chiefs kind of uh, represent kind of like a a one percent kind of power symbol, like gasoline being like the power industry and and bullets being the military and all of that, and Immortan Joe simply being like kind of this raw the the rawness of life, like actual water, sex, and 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 all of that stuff. And these free men kind of controlling all of that and having such a huge impact on everyone in the globe um, as it's depicted in Mad Max. But all of them kind of being these symbols for the for monsters that have existed and still do exist in our society. Just, uh, you know, hogging all of the resources so that they benefit themselves and letting people starve. And then anyone who defies the the rules that they have set in place for how the world should run is chased down and either captured or killed um, and I think that's why ultimately for me in Morton Joe despite I, I mean you could paint him as the blackest of black villains if you wanted to and if you were simply examining text in in the fact that if you were simply examining what he does in this movie yes he's he's pretty much the darkest shade of black but he he represents a lot of symbolic value in this film i think it would be unwise to just brush him off as just a, another dumb uh, action movie villain because there's a lot of thematic value to his character uh, that's conveyed throughout this film just oh, yeah. the, the way he manipulates people and the way he um, he, lim- he limits the resources people have access to hence we should remember him and not do that shit absolutely yeah. there's four resources specifically as well that he exerts control of at the beginning part of the film um, and gradually those resources the, the way they're used and the way they're meted out change and water is obviously the last one when they, they return to the city at the end and you don't see it but you know that they're going to get the water freely given to everybody um, but you've got that then you've got um, the blood that's being stolen from max and mm. given to the uh, war boys and the implication is that there are many many other people that this has happened to um, which the the mirror of that is obviously max giving his, his blood freely to furiosa then you've got the um the milk from the the mothers who are all hooked up to the machines there it's being stripped from them but the flip side of that is when they give it freely to furiosa and the girls to help them escape that nourishment that they've given to them 
um, even though it's been stolen from them, they can still say, well, you know, we this is ours. And when we choose who we give it to, that's when it's truly nourishing. That's when it's truly nurturing and when it will save you when you need it the most. Um, and then you get this really weird little thing going on with the guzzoline, which although it's spoken of in this, it's barely ever the point of contention that it was in the earlier films. Mm. You've got the the whole point of Furiosa and the uh, the Warboys going out originally is ostensibly they're going on a fuel run. They are going to steal it. They are going to take that from Gastown, I think it is they're supposed to be headed to. Um, but then the the mirror of that is that... Uh, Were they going to steal it or are they going to trade with it? Uh, I think there probably would have been. Look at how much of a war party they've got with them. There was going to be some we're getting the best end of this deal. Uh, in the end of the I, th- I, think- I, I, having watched it, I don't know if you've seen it a second time. I haven't, Sharon. no, no. But um, I, they they make it very clear that these towns are all allies. I, okay, I think yeah, I think it is a trading. Run. St- but of course, oh. they're bringing the boys to make sure that they don't get shot and have what their their their, their truck taken from them. Mm. And oh yeah, there was an accident. She fell in a hole. But um, no, no, that's that's definitely a, 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 an agreement with shotguns. Okay, well that's that's <laughs> fair enough. I, I got the wrong end of stick the stick in that one then for which I apologise. But then I think you still have the flip side of that is her offering the fake gasoline as her pass through the mountains, through the canyon. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about Imperator Furiosa? Or do you want to... Should we do Max or Furiosa first? I would say Furiosa first because yeah. I think a lot of what Max is is informed on by her. Right, okay. Um, well, within the first few frames of her being on screen, I was like, well, okay, we've got our Ellen Ripley, we've got our um, yeah. The Bride, we've got our Sarah Connor. This is one of the greatest female characters of all goddamn time. Yeah. Already, straight away. And um, I-, I will break it to you now, guys. There is going to be a sequel to this. There are, there are planned, in fact, maybe even several sequels. And yeah. those sequels might indeed be prequels, because the next one apparently is going to be called Mad Max... Furiosa. There was actually, uh, over the last few days, there was a rumour that that has now changed uh, ah. with, with the next one being called Mad Max The Wasteland. Oh, yeah, The um, Wasteland, yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, although Mad Max Furiosa could be one later down the line, uh, apparently as well, Tom Hardy has signed on for four in total, or four more after he, this. He reported sure. that, that uh, yeah, he was contracted for four. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it looks awesome. like they are forging ahead. <laughs> um, I'm kind of... I'm... A, I'm Almost skeptical as to how they can top this. Yeah, mm, but, but I think I don't even think they really have to top this. Just more like this. More of this be would be great. Yeah, um, it's kind of like they uh, don't really need to top the Avengers. I just love the MCU. Yeah, and by all accounts as well, George Miller has already written or has a lot of ideas set in stone for mm. at least the next three. Yeah. Um, so as as long as he's around, uh, I am on board fully. Yeah, um, I, I can't wait. Now, the only reason I mention that is obviously because that, that gives a scope to the character of Furiosa. And but, how important she is. But if we just look at her in this one film, uh, she tells you so much about herself um, with Theron's performance, the way she's dressed, the mechanical arm, the way she acts. She, I mean, she barely says anything, really, throughout this film. There's a lot more conveyed in looks than there is yeah. in uh, in uh, like she she never has to go into a whole well if we go back they'll kill us blah 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 there's none of that it's all just like like engaging in looks and desperation but like this determination as I said before white hot desire to be free 
she's a female character that we can learn a lot from uh, uh, in terms of uh, like one of the defining moments for her is that drawing back. Like I said, at the end, the, the, uh, the middle end, the, the, the idea that the, this fire that's propelling her forwards could propel her to her own destruction without that sense of scope. And for that, it requires cooperation. We go. Carry on. Carry on. Uh, again, like, as you say, this is a character where they convey so much with visuals. I, the mechanical arm, as cool as it is just aesthetically, you instantly inform your audience, oh, she's seen a lot of conflict. So she's experienced. She's a warrior. And all of that's conveyed really quickly by just showing you that she's had one of her arms removed. Um, just the the war paint and and uh, the fact that she's a high ranking official means that she's really embedded into the society that she's coming from. So her desperation to leave that society, despite the fact that she's you know ascended quite high up in the ranks, speaks a lot to the conditions and and the horrible lifestyle that a Morton Joe subjects all of the people underneath him to. That she would so desperately want to escape to this um what turns out to be a uh a false hope but also just it's so great to have a character who is strong and powerful but the 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 storytellers aren't afraid to show her in positions of vun- uh, vulnerability mm. um I think a mistake and kind of kind of what's happened um, in, in some fiction, and I think we're moving away from it recently, but in a reaction to the negative uh, representations of women, uh, some representations have gone far, you know, too far the other way, where they're just Mary Sue's and they're perfect and they're badasses and everyone dies at their feet and, and what have you. That That's great as a symbol, but as a character, it's very boring. And who are you thinking about here? Can you name check a few? Um, <laughs> I say that, and then I don't have any examples to mind. Any um, female comic character from the nineties who had her yeah, own book? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that. Um, I, um, I, I mean, actually, to some extent, I would say that Cora suffers from this a little bit from in season one. Um, and and stuff like that, um, but they they address that later on. But yeah, I just I I'm it's it's great to see that she is allowed to be powerful and fragile at the same time throughout this story, and that um, Max is not um, uh, diminished by her presence. They are equals. Uh, that fight sequence they have with each other is a great piece of. Um, characterization using uh, action to do that uh, because they display that these two are of similar uh, levels of experience in combat and and what have you. That, that scene also um, helps characterize the wives as well um, because uh, they're, they're not um, helpless in the background. They actually join in. They try to pull at uh, Max's chain and, and work together to try and achieve what none of them can achieve individually. Yeah. George Miller, t- talking about the development of Feroz's character, it sounds like he came to her very organically in that 
he he came up with the idea of the wives first uh you know the story being about uh this these people trying to you know get escape from this society but he he quickly realized that it made absolutely no sense that these wives would follow another man yeah. into the wasteland to uh to the salvation a male because, outsider liberator yeah why why on earth would these women having experienced everything they've experienced trust another man to take them to salvation after their experience with immortan joe it had to be somebody who'd seen the horrors that they had seen it had to be somebody who understood their perspective and that's why it's so key that um that she is a woman, that she is a matriarchal figure because it just a lot thematically. And in terms of what this film is trying to convey, it wouldn't make sense if Ferosa was a man. Yeah. No. I don't know that I would call her matriarchal purely because she embodies the maiden principle so well. Um, right. In terms of this this warrior, and although she is a representative of the mothers from the green place, um, she's she's very detached from that kind of maternal role herself. But one of the things that struck me about uh, the way the the wives were presented and the fact that they are always seen in conjunction with Furiosa as well is you can kind of see them all as uh, elements of a female psyche, not necessarily the universal female psyche because obviously they're all different but in terms of them all being fractured elements that when you bring them all together you can see the whole about them and it comes through in their names they are the splendid anchorad that was rosie huntington whiteley it's actually really fantastic to see her acting like a real person after michael bay it is possible folks capable which is the one who is is kind to Nux. Uh, Cheeto the Fragile. Um, is she the Toast, one who wants to go back? She's the one who wants to go back. Toast the Knowing. Who's That's the one who Zoe gets Kravitz. Put on the truck, exactly, yeah. And she's the one who's the, the most um, familiar with the weapons. She does all the reloading and the bullet counting, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the Dag. The Dag. Who... That's an Australian term for somebody who is not exactly geeky, but somebody who is kind of outsider-ish and unfashionable and doesn't fit with what everybody wants to do. Now, in terms of all of those elements, I, I can quite easily see how all of those elements could be one person, one woman specifically. And if all of those things were being held down and restricted and restrained, I'd be fucking furious too. Yeah. And she becomes the spearhead of the, if you see them as an entity altogether, she becomes the spearhead of that. Yeah. And she's almost the um the replacement for what you would normally have as the animus character that would be Max's role usually. But you're absolutely right. In everything that they've been through and the context in which they have been kept and used and made to be resources against their will they need a um more of an internal thing something that comes from them to lead Mm. them forth and and get them out of that situation and i loved the fact that when he goes in there and the the old woman's kind of laughing at him effectively um the 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 line about she uh, they begged her to take them Mm. Um, and that kind of 
it speaks of their mindset from the very beginning. They are not weak, passive people that are that are just there to be passed around. They are not flags. They have purpose and they have desire and they will fucking act on it. And just the the decisions that George Miller have made that that don't necessarily like from an authorial intent uh, perspective, this probably wasn't his uh, uh, his what he was trying to go for. But just my reading of it, um, the way that Ferosa is the leader here and Max is a supporting role, kind of speaks to how we kind of approach modern feminism now, that you should let the women do the talking and let them explain the 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 horrors that have been committed and, and all the horrible things that have happened to them. Let Let the women lead the charge. Us guys, we're better as megaphones. We're better as, uh, you know what I mean. We're we're better at like signal boosting. I think when um, when guys kind of lead the charge, it comes off as patronizing. It really does. Even if that's not the intent, you you can have the best intentioned male feminist in the world, but like it by taking charge of what should be, you know, what the women should be taking charge of. You're undermining the point. And I like that the film has, you know, like, yeah, like Ferosa is taking charge. She is the one who makes all the major decisions. Max is a supporting figure who is integral to what needs to be done. He is absolutely needed, but he's not he's not the uh he's not the person at the podium he's not the person leading the charge mm. he's supporting ferosa in her objective and specifically they don't put him in joe's place at the end that yeah. was at, at the very end when um they they're on the lift and they're about to rise up and max is kind of stood at the front and i thought oh please god don't tell me they're going to waste all of that by by having him go up there and and become the new leader and he basically grabs her and pushes her to the fore and then disappears into the crowd and you get that wonderful look between them at the end mm. where it's basically she knows what he's done for her and for them but it's something that he doesn't need that massive recognition for he doesn't need that round of applause and everybody bowing down before him because if he took that he would end up just being another joe he would be stepping into the same exact model that's always been there before and that's something that he very specifically turns his back on and walks away from to become just another one of the crowd and i that was lovely i thought yeah, that was fantastic he ultimately feels that he's done the right thing and he just wants to to move on and leave them to uh to to reap the rewards of having a much better life away from Immortan Joe. Mm. He don't he doesn't want to change anything else. He knows his work is done. He's going to move on and go back to what he knows what he knows best and continuing on so nothing can go wrong. And that that probably kind of leads us to Max then, doesn't it? Um yeah. as a character. Not only are we learning a lot about him through other characters, but he is supporting them in a way that is a lot deeper in the way that, uh, like we said, Furiosa could have gone overboard and he's there to keep her level-headed in the end and, and keep her focused on the, on the task and 
ultimately what what he says in that in that speech um before they head off across the the desert the hundreds and hundreds of miles of nothingness ultimately what he says shapes the the ending um and and ultimately the ending of 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 furiosa's well the beginning of furiosa's new chapter in life mm. and he keeps her alive when she's in danger of burning herself out as well yeah, yeah. He, that's the, yeah. yeah, that's the kind of support that he gives to her at that point. But one of the things I really, really liked about Max, I mean really liked about Max, mm-hmm. is that he is not the self-sacrificing paragon from the word go. He has an arc in this, and it's a pretty steep one. His his initial reaction, although because you've seen the, the post-traumatic flashbacks and this immense guilt that he's carrying with him because of all the people that have come across him that he couldn't save um his initial behavior is selfish and it's controlling and it's self-righteous and he takes the position that you know we're going where i say we go because i have the gun and then it backfires on him um and then it's kind of all i would say downhill from there but it's an arc so up yeah, yeah. To, to bring up another post-apocalyptic piece of fiction, um, he reminded me of how Joel in The Last of Us mm. uh, is yeah. desperate is desperate not to form any more attachments to any other human beings because of the price of that attachment, the the horror of when that attachment is taken away from you. So in the in in this early film, uh, in the early scenes of this film. His decision to be selfish, I think, is mainly motivated from fear. Mm. He has seen so many people he's cared about die that now he would rather care for no one but himself just and just keep surviving than experience the grief that comes from attachment in a world where people could die at any second. Um, yeah, I, just I want to talk about Tom Hardy's performance yeah. here because... Yeah. Um, he really impressed me. I, I think for an actor who has so few lines in this film, his physical performance is so compelling. Yes. Um, uh, not only in the moments where there's peace, but in the moments where there's action, you re- he conveys the madness inside Max in a way that Mel Gibson never did. When you're a clown, nobody takes you seriously. <laughs> Uh, there's a feral uh, beast underneath his, uh, underneath all of the, all. Uh, I'm going to say that again, but make the sentence make sense. Um, <laughs> Would you? <laughs> there is a feral beast inside of him, and it comes out in moments of desperation and uh, moments of violence. You see that in the fight with Ferosa, where he like gnaw, gnarls and snarls at everyone who is approaching him, and and uh, and in the truck itself, where he's desperately trying to find any weapons that are hidden in the nooks and crannies of the truck, mm. uh, aggressively and 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 just confused and and frightened, but still intimidating. I I thought it was very funny that Tom Hardy had to spend the first 
third of this movie in a mask, yeah. much like another film role yeah. he was in. But I think credit to him, uh, the fact that in both uh, The Dark Knight Rises and and this, the fact that he has a mask on makes no difference. Like yeah, he, he still conveys presence. so Absolutely. much presence. His his performance was was. His his performance, I just echo what Josh said, was was incredible and i love the fact that um he said in, in an interview that um doing some of the stunts uh and and some of those scenes were absolutely terrifying and he was he was genuinely scared and that sort of um as seeing the film and then reading that was was apparent in uh, one of the shots the close-up shots when he's on the front of of one of the the war boys uh uh cars and he looks genuinely terrified. That is not just him acting; that is him being genuinely terrified as well, which is uh, which is quite uh, um, interesting. But yeah, his 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 presence was was fantastic, and keeping in line with the originals, like the second uh, Mad Max, where um, not much was said, but he was always there, um, wa- was echoed uh, beautifully uh, by Tom Hardy's performance in in this one. I think his presence as well, him him being there and the the knowledge of him being Bane kind of puts a little bit of a an, an underscore to Immortan Joe's mask setup, which is very similar to Bane's in the, the sort of those teeth stroke finger like projections on the front and the distortion of his voice and the basic overall sense that here is a person who has put themselves in a position of leadership and shouldn't be. Hmm. Huh, I I just had a thought just right now. Is the mask a symbol for selfishness and the moment he takes off the mask, he suddenly becomes a more sympathetic and empathetic character, whereas Immortan Joe remains a selfish asshole all the way through the movie and he never removes his mask. Until it's forcibly ripped away from him. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna go ahead and say yes. I've also just had a thought. Max... Is Link true? Think about it, because basically, there's there's no direct correlation between this Max and the previous ones. There's not even really that much correlation between uh, Max in two and Max in three. Quite easy to see this Australian wasteland as a different a generation of High Rule each time. Yeah, 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 I get I it. See that. Yeah, and the uh, um, uh, once he's on his proper journey in, in, in Mad Max two, three, and four, they're all effectively about rescuing the innocent from the abusers, from the exploiters, and uh, and just preserving that grain of hope. And he always seems to go through a very similar journey. Almost like he's not really taking it on board, or he's not the same guy, or he keeps being renewed, or part of his madness is that he keeps having to do this journey. And he replays it in the same way every time until Fury Road when he takes a different tack and therefore the ending is different. Well, yeah, technically, because in the the first two... I mean, in... in, I mean, okay, spoiler for... um, uh, uh, the road warrior. He he doesn't really. All he really succeeds in doing is killing all the baddies, and then finds out that he's been played. And uh, it's it's a really great kind of uh, ending there. The second one, uh, sorry, the third one. He um, 
uh, gets the kids to safety, which is the most direct of uh, like, you know, this is something that you can do as the benefactor, parent and protector. Um, But in this one, it really isn't just about escaping. It's actually kind of about going back and facing the music. And and this isn't really his fights. All he can really do is guide. So, yeah, I think uh, the, the next one might actually be quite different. There's the potential for a home at the end of this one for him as well. I mean, you don't see where he goes after he disappears into the crowd, whether whether he stays or whether he keeps going and leaves. But in all of the previous ones, he's he's passing through. He comes, he does his thing, and then he goes. I don't know. He could go to Sydney and hang around with those mental kids in the. Uh... <laughs> he could, but he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, because they're annoying. Uh, but they don't really need him, and they actually no. he say he functions much better as a symbol for them than as an actual you know guy to have around. Yeah. So yeah, I think um, I kind of like the idea that Mad Max is effectively just a, um, a mythological retelling of the same story each time, but with different uh, twists and different focuses. Definition of madness: replaying the same events with the same actions and expecting a different outcome. Yeah. Okay, uh, any, anything else on any kind of Mad Max, but specifically Fury Road? Is there anything, like, is there any one character or any group of characters that we haven't really given the credit? Um, just to go back to some uh, visual touches in yeah. this movie, um, I read somewhere, and I apologize to the person who wrote this because I can't remember who wrote this down, but uh, I just want to say it was someone else's idea, so nobody can accuse me of patter theft. Yeah. Uh, but, um, patter theft. That's <laughs> such a petty crime. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, they, they mentioned how all these different tribes with all their war paint and the way they customize their their cars is kind of symbolic of how humanity is actually desperate to create mm. and desperate to express itself and kind of uh, create uh, an identity for itself and that even in the worst of scenarios even when we're desperate for food desperate for resources and all of that stuff we will still do this mm. and and pointing specifically to the fact that cavemen despite the fact 
um, death uh, like uh, was basically right outside their cave door. They still painted. They still expressed themselves. So why should that be any different for a society that sprung up in these conditions? That yeah, but society. We 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 will still have culture. We will still have art. We will still have yeah. expression, even in in these worst these terrible scenarios. And that's something that I haven't seen in a uh, post-apocalyptic movie or TV show or video game since maybe Enslaved or um, or even the the previous Mad Max movies. This idea that just because we're in a bad situation doesn't mean that we give up on the arts. The arts are still important, even in this world. <coughs> New century. <laughs> so what you're saying, Josh, what you're saying here is, in the future, <clears throat> there will be mohawks. <laughs> George Miller did actually mention the, the idea that even the steering wheels are kind of beautiful, that they take pride in, in what they do. That, that enormous car that's actually made of two cars... It's 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 got kind of a uh, a staggering stark beauty to the actual uh, the craft of 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 how they've actually sort of thrown these things together. But there's a there's a, a practical aspect to uh, to so many like the, the 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 guys on poles sort of you know bending into actually there is an artistry to that. They're not just sort of like going <laughs> like that. They've actually yeah. trained their bodies acrobatically to achieve that specifically the little touches like they're, they're spraying their teeth chrome before they do like a suicide dive to just sort of like give themselves a flourish so they can look fantastic in front of everybody else um and the um uh what was something else that really struck me the guitar player the guitar player <laughs> yeah Nothing that's going to make you go, yeah, I'm having so much fun. Then, and, so and, awesome. And to not take the film, not to allow the film to take itself too seriously, than having a, like, a guy dressed as a, a mad, like he looks like Eddie from all the Iron Maiden covers. Um, like just basically playing on an enormous like travelling stage and bam, 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 bam. and for the fact that he was actually involved in one of the more elaborate action sequences was a joy to watch it's like in, in, in a lot of things we've seen in the past where there might be somebody in front of the, the, the war band and they're playing a trumpet or doing yeah. some sort of musical number to announce their arrival you've got this guy like you said on a massive stage with a flamethrower guitar just insane it just shows the craziness and the madness of it it's an elaboration of that guy the toady going the ayatollah of rock and roller <laughs> yeah i think the most amazing thing about that flamethrowing guitar is that it both works as a guitar and a <laughs> flamethrower in real life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
it's practical. Um, you mentioned the, the guys coming in on, 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 the, on, the, on the poles. That was my favourite part of the trailer, and it was even more epic in the actual film, seeing when, when Max goes flying over the car mm. and seeing all the explosions and the cars flipping over uh, behind him as he looks back um, at the carnage behind him was such a just an eye-popping moment that it, it it blew me away that moment in particular that was one of the one of, one of the key points that grabbed me in the trailer and and was was even more powerful in the actual movie itself just, just to go back to symbolism again because uh, alex reminded me of it um the car being made of two cars mm-hmm. in a world where it's so rare to even have one of something yeah. Yeah. isn't it very poignant that the guy on top of everything uh is trying to show off the fact that he has two of something nobody has it's- two televisions yeah. <laughs> I saw it in a rerun. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Just a quick question about the, the uh, spraying their mouths with the chrome paint. Mm. Could that be like, um, uh, you know, the whole Roman soldier wearing breastplates with nipples so it looked like your chest was mm-hmm. impenetrable? Um, and therefore would scare the crap out of your enemies. Mm-hmm. Could that be to make them look like they're grinning these rictus grins of, yeah. of fierceness? Well, they're already regardless like of how terrified yeah. they are. Yes, and also it's got that whole like Viking berserker thing, mm. where yeah. uh, like the, the guys would actually be driven into a frenzy before battle, and they would almost certainly die, but they'd take out so many guys doing it. Mm. And th- th- these are the guys who invented Valhalla. Yeah. So, and and, yeah. and and also, you know, it's aerosol, so I, I presume they're getting a high off of this. Oh, good this point. <laughs> I didn't even well. think of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hence the berserker thing. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, for, for the first film to end so small and depressing, for this to be, and like, you know, it's dealing with really heavy shit the whole way through, but for it to be such a, a, a like I said, an opera, a joyful, chaotic opera. The whole way through, it makes me want to get it on Blu-ray and see it again and again and again. And basically, I was going to see it on my own. Then the original podcast, this version of it, was going to be: I come home and I tell Sharon all about this film. I was about twenty-two minutes in, and I thought I can't do that <laughs> because everyone who's seen the film doesn't want to have it explained to them uh, and, like you know, uh, and recounted in just in terms of well, this happened, then this happened. Because what's the point of that? And everyone who hasn't seen the film definitely doesn't want to hear my ass talking about it. So um, it, it was just a not not only do you, Sharon, need to see the film, and so we could talk about it properly. Everyone needs to see this film. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's that's why this podcast changed like on the fly. And and just to expand on a point you were making about the way this film ends. Um, to have the conclusion be, let's not escape from this horrible world. Let's make this horrible world better, mm. be the ultimate conclusion of this film. Yeah, that's so refreshing. Because in a lot of films where you have this scenario... Yeah. You go um, to the Greenland where everything's You go to the, the promised place and they, and they actually find it. Like, yep. they actually find the utopia. Spoiler warning, water world, they get to the green place called dry land. Yeah. yeah. And, it's a and really, that's... That's a great statement on humanity, the idea of, like, we've got to leave this planet behind, we fucked it. It's like, no, we can fix it. We just have to stop being so fucking depressingly, like, like, like so willing to give up on it. And th- and that's what the message of this film is. G- 
go back, fix it, and maybe we'll have a better life. Stop imagining a fantasy utopia that will never be. Especially one that requires you to keep mining the earth for rocket fuel. (laughs) Oh, you mean we literally to find other planets. But I mean, I I also, I'm torn on this one because I also want to stretch uh, humanity out across the stars. I want to see what's out there. I want us to be able to reach that. But it kind of needs to be, this is our home and we go and make another home as well. Try not to fuck this one up. But we keep this one in good working order. We don't go, it's fucked, get rid of it. If if this one is sustained and fixed and then we go out into the universe, then we're going from a position of strength. If we abandon Earth and go out into the universe because we are desperately running away from our mistakes, guess what? We're going to keep doing that and it will be planet hopping forever. I say again... Remember me. It's all basically just remember the mistakes of the shitheads who came before. That's correct. Okay. Um, I think we're done on that incredibly cosmic note. Uh, I would like to just say one big shout out to the uh, the mothers. The idea that um, that there's these these mother bikers out there with their leathery old skin and um, that they were very understated. When they turned up, they didn't just sort of like start cracking wise and shouting again. We are great big darn tootin' characters. They were they had a gentleness to them. They were hard but gentle at the same time. You know, one of them was clearly uh, good at uh, you know uh, at healing, and they had a dignity to them, a dignity you don't normally get in giant action films, and that was so gratifying to see. Also. Did you see in the credits what their collective name is? Oh, the Mothers, or was it? The Vuvalini. Oh, the Vuvalini. Okay. (laughs) Works for me. (laughs) Ditto. And that's also possibly why um, uh, Furiosa gave off such a mother vibe, because she came from them. Even though she was the maiden, she was bringing the mother vibe with her. So yeah, um, I, I, uh, everyone who's got listened this far to it, if you haven't already seen the film, you'll know to see the film. Uh, if you have, you'll be as interested as we are in seeing it again and again and again. And we will see you bright and early for Mad Max 5, whenever that happens. Can't wait. I, I would just say that anyone who's listened to this podcast and hasn't seen the film, I wouldn't worry too much about spoilers because unlike a lot of films, this is about the visuals and there is nothing that we have said on this podcast that could possibly spoil the visual spectacle that is Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. We can, we can merely describe it and we're not even really allowed to use superlatives all that much without qualifying statements. Anyway, um, next week, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, as planned, um, as was originally planned for this week. Uh, sorry to deviate, but we uh, so there was a change of plan. Furiosa drove us off the tracks. We didn't end up going to uh, Barter Town or whatever the fuck it's called. And uh, yeah, then a big desert chase ensued. So hence this. And, uh, and we'll do that if, uh, if, if uh, sudden cinema releases are so good that they actually indeed circumvent our schedule. Um, cool. Thank you. Right, let's, let's end on Tina Turner, shall we?
Because okay. we don't need another hero. Huh? <laughs> I see what you did there. She's a very wise lady. Thank you, Tina Turner. You're simply the best. Okay, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. Thank you very much to Joshua Garrity and James Perkins. Thank you. Thank you. And neural handshake complete.
Thank you very much to uh, Joshua Garrity and Jerome. Jerome McIntosh? Because <laughs> you lent us your spiritual guidance, Jerome. <laughs> that was splendid, guys. Thank you so very much. I'm Thank so you. glad I got you, you, you on for this. And it was just going to be the two of us. And I think I was thinking when I was watching it, this needs bigger, more, better. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I would just like to say, guys, thank you so much for your enthusiasm because one of the things that has really frustrated me this week is I felt so blocked about what I wanted to say about the film and your passion kind of clicked it for me. So thank you. It's quite all right. Problem. I, I, <laughs> I, I, need to, I need to see this again. Uh, I'm probably going to go see this again tomorrow because it is. It it, imp- it improves on a second view. Oh, I'm sure. Like, and yeah. the blue the Blu-ray is already on pre-order. Oh. I was going to say, can we safely say, Midge, that this is going to be a blue yay? <laughs> <laughs> I I th- I think that it might just be. Yes, mm. of course it is. Yeah. I yes. well, I've I gave it a perfect five out of five score when I reviewed it on my YouTube channel. So, uh, and. And yeah, as I, as I mentioned, it's it's definitely up there as one of my favourites from as from as far back as I can remember. It's one of the one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Just perfect in every way. Thank you for sitting through my nine page essay as well. Oh, I loved so, it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I felt I wasn't originally going to speak about those wank biscuits, but then I read a little deeper and I was like, wow, wow. Yeah. You guys really are fucking idiots, aren't you? Well, we, we used it. We used it as a great comparison to to some of the characters in the films. So oh yeah, it was. Nice. It, was I, it just it slotted into place so neatly. It's like wow, <laughs> you actually voluntarily put yourself in that position. Thank you. In their defence, I would just like to say there is also um, a review on ROK that basically says. Yes, there's women in it, but you can safely ignore them and just enjoy the fact that it's a great action film. That's their defence? That's their defence. Well, adequately (laughs) defended. Well done. I give it a one. Swing and a miss. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, thank you very much, guys. That was was awesome. Um, Cheers, guys. And I think Jurassic Park, Jurassic World will probably be the next one. Yes. Cool. Uh, Looking looking, there. Forward. Looking forward to the Bastardosaurus Rex. Yeah, the the I I think I don't know if I mentioned this when we did that like um when Neil was on the show, was that that's when we did Jurassic Park three when we did talked about the trailers and you released that to the Patreon people. Uh yes. Um yeah, the I loved how in the in the trailer for Jurassic World they didn't they only showed like snippets and teases of the Indominus Rex. Mm-hmm. And then I op- I think I mentioned this to you actually, didn't I, um when at Driftcon. That I opened yeah. like, the latest issue of Empire, and it's there's right just a great there. Yeah, I was like, "Well, thanks for that." The the grand reveal of the Indominus Rex to me is gonna be like, oh, "I've seen it before." See, I, 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 what I'm hoping they're doing is actually that they're doing a great big switcheroo, and actually the thing that they're saying is the Indominus Rex each isn't at all, and we've not even seen a foot yet of the mm. real thing, and that the, the real that would be nice. It's going to be incredible and made of fire, but probably. <laughs> The giant <laughs> Cthulhu monster. Yes. There's some, like... frankly, after this wait, I mean, it's going to have to be like smoking a pipe and going, yes, nobody suspects the Indominus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> the Indominus Rex Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you guys very, very much. This was wonderful. Cheers, Alex. Cool. Cheers, Sharon. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye.